of a series that we're calling Christianity Illustrated. Actually, we're nearing the end of this series. And in this series, what we're doing is we're taking a look at some stories that Jesus told. And we call these stories parables. And what parables do for us is they do a couple of things. They illustrate the Christian life as it was meant to be. And so they provide for us a window through which we can look at and see life the way God intended. But they also provide for us a mirror through which we can see ourselves and how we fit into the life that God intended. So today we're going to be reading uh, from a parable from the book of Matthew. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, the second half of the Bible. It was written by a man named Matthew, who was a disciple of Jesus, who decided to write down the story of Jesus' life, the story of his ministry. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 21. We're going to be reading from verse 23. If you don't have a Bible, there are different ways you can follow along. You can read on the verses on the screen. Uh, You can take your phone or your tablet out. Uh, Go to the Bible app or the Bible Gateway app. Both are great apps for reading the Bible. Or if you're in one of our buildings at one of our campuses, you can take one of the Bibles we have here at Calvary Church in Southerton. They're in the seat racks in front of you. Quakertown, they're in the back of the room. They're on a cart. Uh, You can just raise your hand, Usher will bring you one, get up, go get one, whatever you want to do. We're kind of free and loose in Quakertown, so go ahead and get one. Uh, Whether you're in Quakertown or in Sourton, if you don't own a Bible, take it home. It's our gift to you. It's free. We believe that the Bible is filled with life-changing truth, and we want you to have access to that truth. And so if you don't have a Bible, take it home. If you don't know how to read a Bible, if you've never opened one up before, just give us a call. We'd love to walk with you through that. So we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 21. We're going to be starting at verse 28. And this is Jesus talking, and he says, What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. So let's take a moment and actually look at the story behind the story. We're going to look at the story behind the story. So here's what's going on up until this point. Jesus is in the last few days of his life. He's in the last few days until right before he goes onto a cross and and dies on a cross and then gets put into a tomb and three days later walks out alive, eternally victorious. And what happens up until this point are some crazy things. Jesus enters Jerusalem riding onto a donkey. And as he rides on this donkey, there's this parade that happens. And think of all the emotions of a World Series win or a Super Bowl victory. All this stuff is going on. People are cheering and crying out all these praises to Jesus. 
But when he enters Jerusalem, things kind of change a little bit. Things start to get a little weird. He goes into the temple, the place where the Jewish people worship God. And when he goes into the temple, his aim is to purify the temple, to purify the temple of the people who had been cheating others and making a mockery of God. And so he goes and he starts to flip tables over and he starts to kick people out, the people who were just there and they were selling things and they were doing things of cheating people and it was just crazy. And Jesus goes and he does all this. He just, he just starts flipping. He just goes nuts. He's angry. And then what happens is there's this group of people that, that, that come and, and, and there's crowds of people and they're sick there and there are and people who are blind and there are people who are lame and Jesus goes and he heals them. And this crowd continues to form and in that crowd are kids and there's kids in the crowd and, and the kids begin to shout cheers and praises towards Jesus and they start shouting all these good things about Jesus and that's when the religious leaders, the teachers of the law, the chief priests, they finally have enough. They get upset. It's the cries of the children that finally set them off and they go to Jesus and they begin to question him and they question his authority. They say, who gave you the authority to do what you're doing? Where is your authority from? And it's in the midst of Jesus' response to this question. And it's in the middle of his response to this question that he tells this story. This story is a part of his response to their question. And the reason that's important is because when we understand that, we understand the who and the why of the parable. Who is this parable being told to? It's being told to the teachers of the law. It's being told to the chief priests. It's being told to these Jewish religious leaders. Why? Well, I already told you, they were questioning Jesus' authority. They were questioning Jesus' authority, and he was responding. And Jesus does an interesting thing in his response. When Jesus responds to the chief priest, when he responds to the teachers of the law, he points to another man. <laughs> he points to a man by the name of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was actually a cousin of Jesus's. He, he was uh, this kind of this crazy dude. He lived out in the wilderness uh, and he, he preached a message to the people and he was considered a great prophet. At the point in this story that we just read, John is actually dead. He had been killed by King Herod. And Jesus points to John the Baptist for his response. Let's take a look again at Matthew 21 and verse 23. This is right before he tells the story. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it amongst themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. This is right before 
Jesus tells the parable. And Jesus points to John the Baptist and, and, the, and the, the teachers of the law, the, the elders, the chief priests, they ask and they make an interesting comment. They say that if we say it's from God, he'll ask us, why didn't we believe him? Well, what was it that they didn't believe? What was the message of John the Baptist that they didn't believe? Why is this comment even made? In the book of John, Another John, not John the Baptist, John the disciple. John also writes about the life of Jesus. And he writes about John the Baptist. And he writes about something that John the Baptist says. When John the Baptist sees Jesus one time, he cries out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If the chief priests, if the religious people actually believed that the message of John the Baptist was from God, they would have never questioned Jesus' authority. Because John pointed to Jesus and proclaimed who he was. If they accept John's message as being from God, they have to accept that Jesus is also from God. But even more directly linked, this parable directly points to the message of John the Baptist. You see, this parable is a story of repentance. It's a story of repentance. Merriam-Webster defines the word repent. Repent is to turn from sin and dedicate oneself to the amendment of one's life, to feel regret or contrition, to change one's mind. And it's interesting, if you, if you were to look at uh, the story, if you were to look at the first son, and it says the first son says, I will not, and then it says he changes his mind. The word in the original Greek, the word that's used there is actually the word for repent. He repents, and then he obeys the command. It is after his heart changes that he actually obeys. It's after his heart goes through repentance that he actually obeys. And that's important because if we look at this question that Jesus asked the, the, the people who are hearing the story, if we look at the question that Jesus asked the religious leaders, what was it? Which one of the sons did what the father desired? Which one of the sons did the father's will? He asks this question and the religious leaders get it right. They say the, the first son. They say the first son and they're right. But I'm pretty confident that they only understood half of the reason that they were right. The first son did what the father desired. He did the command that the father gave him. And that's important. That's, the father desired for the command to be obeyed. And we're going to get to that a little bit later. But there is something else that the father desired. There's something else that the father desires from us. There's something else that God desires from us. And God desires repentance. He desires a repentant heart. You see, throughout the history of humanity... All of us, including you and definitely including me, all of us have sinned. And in so doing, we declare outright rebellion against God. And sin is, sin is just this, this church word. It's a word from the Bible. But if you don't understand what sin means, it's simple. This is what sin means. Sin is when you do something that God doesn't want you to do. Or, as in the case of this parable, you don't do something that God wants you to do. That's all sin is. And because we've sinned, because we've declared this outright rebellion against God, there is a need for repentance. There is a need for a repentant heart. 
And the message of John the Baptist was that. It was repent. But not only was it repent, it was repent. And the source that provides for your ability to repent is Jesus, the Lamb of God, who would take away the sin of the world. This is John the Baptist's message. And this is so important. Because this parable is not simply checking off a to-do list of what God desires. It's about a change of heart. It's about a heart that turns towards God. It's about a heart of repentance. And this repentance can only happen because of Jesus. And so this is a story about repentance. But it's also a story about grace. It's also a story about grace. Myron Augsburger in his commentary about this parable states that this is one of 10 parables that shows God's mercy towards sinners. It's one of 10 parables that shows God's mercy towards sinners. And so if this parable is one of 10 parables that is about God's mercy towards sinners, if this parable is about God's mercy towards sinners, I have one question. Which son is the sinner? You see, here is what's going on. The two sons represent two different groups of people. The first group are the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the people who are looked down upon in society. The second group are the people who Jesus is actually talking to, the teachers of the law, the elders, the chief priests. Which one of them are the sinners. I was reading this parable and it was interesting because I started to laugh to myself because as a dad, I'm reading this and I'm like, yeah, I get you. This has happened to me before. And and I'm going to tell a story about my children. And here's the thing. Whenever I tell a story about my children, I pay for it later on. Not necessarily from them, but from my wife. She actually texted me after first service. It was like, "Mm." but here's the deal. I need to preface this story, okay? My children are good kids. They're good kids. I love my children. They're responsible, especially my older two, whom I'm about to tell a story about, Caleb and Autumn. They're great kids. They help out at the house. They're wonderful. But there was this one time Actually, there was many times, but for today, we're going to say there was this one time that something happened. I was doing work in the kitchen. I was on my laptop doing work for church, and, and <clears throat> it was a lot of stuff, and I had a deadline to kind of get stuff done, and I'm getting it done, and I look over in the kitchen, and the sink is just filled with dishes. There's dirty dishes. It's a mountain of dishes. It's, it shouldn't be there. Those dishes shouldn't be in the sink. They should be done. They were crying out, clean us. And so my daughter, Autumn, walks into the room. And Autumn, is, she's very responsible. She always helps. Autumn, is, she's, she's good. She walks into the room, and I say, Autumn, do the dishes. She looks at me, and she stomps her foot and goes, no! What? Excuse me? No, I don't want to. And she turns around and stomps all the way up to her room. I don't even know what happened there. 
I'm just sitting there flabbergasted. I'm like, what just happened? I don't know if she was tired, hangry. I don't know what was going on. She goes up to her room and I'm like, all right, I can't deal with this right now. And frankly, she scares me. But I'm not going up there. So I continue to do my work. It gets later on in the evening. It's getting towards nighttime. The dishes are still there. In fact, they've multiplied. There's more dishes in the sink. My son, Caleb, walks into the room. I look at Caleb and I say, dude, do me a favor. Go do the dishes, all right? I'll do the dishes, but I'm going to do them later. All right, just do them tonight, okay? I'll do the dishes. I'm going to do them later, okay, Dad? I'll do them tonight. I'll do, I'll do the dishes later. Okay, okay. So I start to head up upstairs, free, relaxed. My firstborn, my son, has freed me from the nightmare of dirty dishes. I go to bed. I have a refreshing night's sleep, free of any nightmares of dishes, because of my firstborn, my son. I'm so refreshed that I oversleep. I get up in the morning, I'm running late, I run downstairs to go grab something to eat. I walk into the dishes. Not into the dishes, I almost did walk right into the dishes. I walked into the kitchen. And there were the dishes, still dirty. My firstborn, my son. <laughs> he didn't do the dishes. So I'm, I'm grabbing something real quick to eat, and as I'm grabbing something to eat, Autumn walks into the kitchen, doesn't say a word to me, walks straight to the sink, and starts to do the dishes. I have a question for you. My question is different than Jesus' question. Here's my question to you. Which of my children disobeyed me? Which of my children disobeyed me? They both disobeyed me. Autumn doing the dishes doesn't negate her stomping her feet and walking up the steps and disobeying me and disrespecting me. She still disobeyed me, but she was the only one who repented and actually came back and did what I was asked. I asked her to do. Both of my children were disobedient. And that is so important to understanding this parable. Both of the sons are sinners. Both of the sons are sinners. One is not better than the other. They both sin, but one responds with a repentant heart. And because of that repentance, he accepts grace. And the narrative of his story, the narrative of his story changes. And so we see that grace is offered to this first son. We see it in, in the narrative of this first son. But this is a parable about God showing mercy to sinners. Just one group of sinners? No, actually, if we were to look a little closer, we would see that grace is actually offered to both groups. See, Jesus actually leaves the story open-ended. He leaves it ambiguous. We don't really know what happens to that second son. But then he does something very interesting. He uses a particular phrase. When he begins to talk uh, to, the, to the teachers of the law, when he begins to talk to these chief priests, 
when he begins to talk to these elders, he tells them that the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. And there's some controversy about that statement because a lot of commentators, not a lot, there are some commentators that actually would say, this should actually mean instead of you. That's what this should mean. It should mean instead of you. But many commentators say, no, actually, it does mean ahead of you. And when you look at the Greek, when you look at the language, it actually does mean ahead of, before. Jesus is saying that they enter ahead of you. He is not cutting them off. There is still an invitation of grace that he extends to them if only they would repent. Still not convinced with that, huh? Still not seeing the grace in that passage, huh? Well, why don't we look forward a little bit? Why don't we test what I just said? Just a few days, Jesus would stretch out his arms on a cross and he would die to pay the penalty for your sin, for my sin, for all sin. For the sins of the tax collectors, for the sins of the prostitutes, and for the sins of the chief priests, and for the sins of those elders, and for the sins of the teachers of the law. For all. And when he walked out of that tomb three days later, alive and eternally victorious, everything changed. Even for those religious leaders. In Acts chapter 6, I found a verse that I've never noticed before. In Acts chapter 6, it's a story about when it's talking about how they just set up the role of deacons, and it's, it's just kind of naming that. It's naming who the deacons are, and, it, and you get to the end of the verse, the, uh, the end of, of this section, Acts chapter 6, verse 7, and you get this sentence, and then you get something kind of just thrown in. So Acts chapter 6, verse 7 says this, So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. It's just like a throw-in. It's just like kind of just added in. You you skip over it. If you're kind of speed reading, you don't notice it. But that's huge. That's humongous. Like it's amazing. Like this happens with the Bible all the time. I, I find stuff that I just didn't realize was there when I read it before. And then it's just right there. A large number of the priests came. A large number of the priests repented, responded to grace. That very group that Jesus is talking about with that second son, they actually respond to grace and repent. That's amazing. That's amazing. This parable is a story about repentance. This parable is a story about grace. And finally, this parable is a story about mission. I told you earlier that we would come back to the command of the Father in this parable, and we have to because grace is always linked to mission. Grace is always linked to mission. In fact, there are times when churches, especially in America, 
They kind of focus on something. They kind of provide an emphasis on something. And at times, they can become kind of known for that. Like this is a discipleship-driven church or this is a mission-minded church. And oftentimes, those particular emphases seem to be in conflict with each other. And so what happens is, is that you have discipleship on this side and you have mission on this side and the churches kind of pull at each other and they kind of go in opposite directions. You, you, we gotta be more discipleship-driven or we have to be more mission-minded. That is so false Discipleship and mission don't go in opposite directions. They go in the same direction. They follow the same path. Because discipleship always leads to mission. And mission always flows from discipleship. They have to go in tandem. You can't have one without the other. So we need to be a church that is discipleship-driven and we need a church that is on mission with Jesus. Discipleship always leads to mission. Mission always flows from discipleship. The reality is, is that this parable of grace is an invitation to be a disciple of Jesus. And when we become a disciple of Jesus, we take on the mission that he started. Why? Because that's what disciples do. Because here's what a disciple is. A disciple is someone who listens to and learns from Jesus so that they may live and love like Jesus. A disciple is someone who listens to and learns from Jesus so that they may live and love like Jesus. We are called to be a church that is listening to and learning from Jesus and growing as disciples of Jesus. And as we grow, we go out on mission, continuing the mission that Jesus started as disciples to make more disciples. We are a church that is driven by discipleship and is on mission. We have to be both. What is the mission that is given in this parable? What is the command that's given? Let's go back to verse 28. There's actually four layers to the command. The first is this. Go. Go. Being a disciple is not about isolating ourselves from the world. In fact, it's about the opposite. It's about going out into the world. Go and work. There is a mission to be done. There's a mission that Jesus started, and we are to partake in it. Go and work today. There is an urgency to this mission. It is not something we come to when we decide that we are ready for it and that we're getting around to it. There's, that there's nothing better to do, that, okay, we might find some time to squeeze that in. There is an urgency to the mission. Go and work today. Go and work today in the vineyards. Go and work today in the vineyard. This is an interesting picture that Jesus uses. And it's a common picture at that time. The people who were listening to it would have heard that picture, they would have heard that metaphor, and they would have recognized it. The vineyard was a common metaphor, a common picture that was used to describe Israel. It was used to describe God's people, his people. God desires to claim us back as his people. 
And if we embrace his grace and we turn with hearts of repentance, we are sent back out in mission to go to the people he desires to claim back as his own. Go and work today in the vineyard. This parable is a story about mission. When we repent, we don't just turn from ourselves and turn to Jesus. When we repent, we also turn from our own mission and turn to Jesus and continue the mission that he started. And so this parable is a story of repentance. It is a story of grace. Is it a story of mission? Let us respond to the grace and mercy that is shown to us because of Jesus and repent and then go and continue the mission that Jesus started. In just a few moments, we're going to shift gears and we're going to actually have communion together as a church here in Souderton and also in Quakertown. It's one church, one community. And these themes of repentance and grace and mission are all in communion. The reality is when we come and eat of the bread and drink of the cup, we are called to come with hearts of repentance. We are called to come with hearts that are repentant before this holy God, this righteous God. So whatever it is that's kind of holding you back between you and God, whatever it is that's not right with God, now's the time to kind of deal with that. Now's the time to have a conversation with him. Now's the time to repent and ask for forgiveness. And we come with hearts of repentance. But then these repentant hearts explode with joy as we are reminded of the grace of this God who loves us more than we can imagine. Our hearts respond with joy as we look at this God who did everything and anything to claim us back. And our hearts are filled with the grace that he shows. Repentance and grace. In a moment as we're doing communion, I ask you here in Souderton and also in Quakertown to just spend some time with God reflecting, repenting, and being awed by his grace. So here's what we're going to do. In a moment, I'm going to pray. And as I pray, the servers in Souderton and the servers in Quakertown are going to come forward. And when I finish praying, they're going to hand you out the bread. And so when you are ready, you just take some time to kind of just pray. Take some time to just spend some time with God. Get right with him. Tell him what you need to tell him. Just know that his heart is exploding with love for you. He just wants to show you grace. So just spend some time talking to him. And when you're ready, eat the bread. Eat the bread on your own. Whether here in Souderton or in Quakertown, the service will serve you the bread. And when you're ready, you eat the bread. And then what's going to happen? They're going to come down again. And they're going to pass out the cup. Don't drink the cup yet. What's going to happen is, is I'm going to come back up here in Sourton, and in Quakertown, Chad will come back up. 
and we'll drink the cup together. Servers will come down, they'll serve you the bread. You're to eat that bread when you're ready. Hold on to that cup until we do that together. Let's pray. God, we love you. And we thank you so much for your grace. But Lord, we also ask for your forgiveness. God, there's far too many times I take for granted your grace and I make a mockery of it with my life. And so I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to forgive me for my arrogance. I ask you to forgive me for the times that I fight with my wife or for the times that I'm rude to someone or for the times I just become bitter and unforgiving or judging or for any of these sins that just fill my life. I ask you to please forgive me. God, forgive me. God, thank you so much. So much for your love. So much for your grace. I stand in awe at how marvelous you are. Lord, we pray this in the name of Jesus.